Good morning, Missia. The scripture reading today is from John um, chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. You do not know me or my father. Or, then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not come. Hello. Thanks, Ria, for reading that. Um, we're going to do a practice together called Lectio Divina. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but it's like the idea of divine reading. And it's because I want you to participate with me in a little bit of this um, scripture. I want you to be present to the text. Like when we hear it, sometimes it's easy for it to just stay in our brains. But I want to do a little Mary Poppins move. And you know like when Mary Poppins, like she has them and there's the picture in the sidewalk and they all like jump into the picture. That's Lectio Divina. That's exactly what Lectio Divina is. So we're going to do our Lectio Divina Mary Poppins move. Um, and I want you to like jump into the text with me. And it's, we learn through our minds, but we also learn by being immersive, like allowing the story to really kind of capture us. So I'm going to read the part. And today um, we're going to talk specifically about the first part of John chapter 8. Rhea read a larger section, we're going to stick with the story part where Jesus is interacting with a woman. 
And so now that you've heard it one time, the practice of Lectio Divina is that you hear the text multiple times. And so I'm going to read it again. And when I read it again, I want you just, you can have your eyes open, you can close your eyes. I want you to um, pay attention to if there is a word or a phrase that stands out to you. And if there's a word or a phrase that stands out to you, I want you to hold on to that word or phrase as I continue reading. And then at the end of the reading, I'm going to ask you to call out that word or phrase so that we can all hear from each other. Where in the picture you are? What part of the picture captured your imagination? And so if you would do that, or maybe there's a character in the story that resonates with you, you don't have to call out that character, but hold on to it. So as I read, remember you're thinking if there's, a, there's a something that highlights in you, a word or a phrase that highlights, and then I want you to call them out after I've read it. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said, Jesus, said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Have, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So call out any words or phrases that stood out to you. Call them out loudly so we can hear each other.
thank you for participating in that with me. Now that we're in the story, we're in the text, we're in the picture, we're going to look at the characters that are there. Can someone grab me a Kleenex from the back? Not, I feel like I have some drippiness happening. Thanks, Josh. Now that we're in the text, it's insightful for me to hear the things that stand out to you, the things that are highlighted. And so we stay in this text together. We're going to look at the characters that we've, we've read about twice. And the first one that I want us to look at is the woman. The woman who is standing there. She is made to stand in the middle of a crowd. There's a group of men that have brought her into the middle of a crowd. And the question that they're asking Jesus is, should we kill her? It's a totally intense moment. And then she stands there and waits while that answer is given. And you can imagine the experience that she is going through while she's standing there in the middle of the crowd waiting. Can imagine that she is fearful because she has no idea what is going to happen to her. Or maybe she does, and that's why she's fearful. I imagine that there's humiliation. And um, Brené Brown defines humiliation this way. It's an intensely painful feeling that we've been unjustly degraded ridiculed or put down and that our identity has been demeaned or devalued and we feel like we don't deserve it. There should be a man standing next to her. She's standing alone and the act that she did, she didn't do alone. She is being humiliated And she's been, using, she's been used as a trap. It tells us that in verse 16. Again, it's an act of humiliation. She's being devalued and, and, and demeaned because these religious leaders want to use her to get to Jesus. That is humiliation. So maybe she feels enraged that she's standing there alone. She shouldn't be. And maybe there's a feeling of shame. She's being shamed. Shame is that intense feeling of worthlessness. She's being treated like she's worthless. And there's an expectation that comes out of that feeling of worthlessness. There's an, an expectation that comes out of the feeling of shame. And it is that we are going to be ridiculed and rejected and potentially harmed. We have this feeling of worthlessness. And out of that feeling of worthlessness comes the expectation. You're going to reject me. You're going to ridicule me. You're going to harm me. 
That's the expectation that comes out of shame. And then there's guilt. I've done something wrong. It's an uncomfortable feeling when we recognize that we've done something wrong. But guilt is generative. It drives us towards reconnection. That's the true nature of guilt, which is different than the other feelings above, the other senses above. Guilt, has, while it's uncomfortable, it becomes like a drive towards making amends or apologizing or, or actually doing something to reconnect. So there she is. She's standing, drug in, made to stand in front, humiliated, shame, fear, and guilt. It's a lot. This is the experience that we can imagine. And if we're in the crowd and we're watching, we're absorbing this. And then, while she is standing there, all of those men walk away. then you're like, shock, right? Total shock and disbelief. I, not exactly how I imagine this moment to go. Dudes are walking away. Shock and disbelief is what I can imagine is happening now in this picture that we're all in. But she is still standing in front of one man. One man who is left who could condemn her. Jesus. He doesn't condemn her. He wasn't ever going to. And his first statement relieves her fear and shame. I don't condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. I won't harm you. I am not here to harm you. And then he offers words which speak to her guilt. She was caught in the act of adultery, the text says. And so then he offers her words which speak to her guilt. Go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. Different translators translate it differently. And there's many words in the Bible that translate that word sin. There are tons of them. It's really worth doing a word study study on the book on the word of sin because it's so multifaceted and it can get so easily reduced. The Bible Project has this whole series of videos on sin, which I think are fabulous. You know, if you have a bit of time, go and have a wee look at that, because you know you want to figure out what sin is, right? (laughs) No, says everyone. But there are many words that are translated sin, and the word here is hamatia in Greek. And it's the Greek word that means to miss the mark. You probably heard people 
talk about sin as a way of missing the mark. And so here, in this moment, she's missed the mark, and the way that she's missed the mark is that she has failed to keep the law. And we know that because that's the accusation that these gentlemen bring to her. She has not kept the law, and the punishment for not keeping the law is that we would be able to stone her. And so Jesus says to her, go and have your freedom and have your life, but don't break the law. Stop. Which is also protective, because the consequences of that violation are intense. So he tells her to stop. And when we are guilty, it is very important that we are held accountable. Very important. And being held accountable is very different than being shamed and humiliated worlds apart. The voice of shame and humiliation and perfectionism produces a lot of condemnation. And often it's the voice that is running, the voice that runs through our heads or the voice that we receive from others with condemnation is, you are ruining everything. You deserve something bad. That's the voice of condemnation. You are ruining everything. Because you're ruining everything, you deserve something bad. Accountability is different. There's a woman, there's a woman Kai Chang Tom, and she, took, she helps with accountability because sometimes I think those two things are made synonymous. And I love the way that it's described because accountability is, there's an account, there's a story. If you break the word into two, there's a story here. Let's figure out what the story is. We take an account of what the story is and then we have an ability, the capacity to do something. So if we find in the story that there's guilt, then there's something that we can do about that. If we've made a mistake, we can apologize. We can take responsibility for something. We can reach towards, we can repair. Again, it's generative. Account, what's the story? Oh, I can take responsibility for that. How might I take responsibility for that? Oh, I can say, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do to repair because if I'm guilty, there's likely something that I've done that has harmed somebody else or myself. And so then I can take account. Okay, let me, let me know what this story is. Oh, this is the way that I've participated in harm. Oh, this is the way that I, I have an ability here to reach towards, to make amends, to apologize. I can reconnect. I can belong again to you. You can belong again to me. That's the beauty of guilt. 
It's generative. I'm in a support group. It's a community conversation, but it's actually a support group. And it's a support group um, that is about breaking cycles of harm. Oftentimes when you've experienced harm, it's easy to weaponize that pain and then, here I go, the cycle of harm. You hurt me, I'm about to hurt you. Like that's often what happens when somebody is bullied. They then bully somebody else. So I'm in this support group, you know, and it's about breaking cycles of harm. And the major component of it is learning to use love and respect in holding other people accountable. And it's also about using love and respect in holding ourselves accountable. And so part of using love and respect to hold ourselves accountable is living into the reality that we cannot set an expectation for ourselves that we will never do harm. We will. We are human. So we will do harm. And we will make mistakes. So the standard cannot be that we don't make mistakes. It's not that we don't strive to do our best. We do strive to do our best, but we cannot expect to be perfect. And if we hold ourselves to a standard that we are perfect, then we tend, when properly held to account, to become fragile and defensive. Because we have an expectation of ourselves that, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 I cannot be a person that harms somebody else. And so we get fragile and defensive or we just fall apart. We don't have to hold ourselves to that kind of standard. And fragility and defensiveness just contributes to the cycle of harm. And so that's why it's really important to learn to use love and respect in holding ourselves and others accountable. The woman who leads the group that I am in, she has experienced so much harm in her life, more than anyone that I've ever known. And so she is not soft on harm. But she is masterful in holding other people accountable with love and respect. I always hear her voice in my head. Oh, does that have the register of love about it? And I'm all, nope, sure doesn't. Well. But I think the reason that she is so masterful is because she believes so deeply in breaking the cycle of harm. She knows what it feels like to be harmed. And so she is invested in breaking the cycle of harm. And she does it masterfully with a lot of joy. And so the way that she shows up is different. 
And when she does that holding of accountability, it feels different. It doesn't feel like shame. It doesn't feel like humiliation. It doesn't elicit that feeling of shutting down or needing to hide because she does it joyfully. She does it respectfully. And she does it with love. The voice of shame and humiliation and perfectionism produces a lot of self-condemnation. It's the voice that says you're ruining everything. That you deserve some kind of punishment. And unfortunately, that's the voice we hear a lot in social media. It's what we say to each other. It's what we say to ourselves when we make mistakes. It's what our authority figures have said to us. Bosses, parents, teachers, coaches. It's those who speak on behalf of God. It's those kinds of authority figures that are saying these kinds of things. It's what these authority figures in this text that we have jumped into are doing and saying. And Jesus, Jesus is so different. And what he does here is masterful. His voice to the woman, you're not condemned. but don't do that anymore. That's the voice and gaze that builds security. It's a place where you can relax because you're not going to be able to get away with anything. But you're also not going to be shamed and humiliated for your mistakes. That's security. That builds security and safety and trust. It's being held in an embrace of love because it's strong and it's respectful and it's kind. And kindness is not niceness or softness. It's kind. This woman is treated with love and respect by Jesus. So we have this character that's standing here. She's the woman. She's in the picture with us. And now I want to go and have a little look-see at the other characters that came into the room. We have the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Completely different set of humans in this moment, right? That we're interacting with, jumping into this picture. They are the religious leaders and they are the interpreters of the Torah, which is the law. In the Hebrew scriptures, the first five books, Torah, or in the Old Testament, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Torah. It's their job to interpret the law. And they do um, interpret this law for decisions about legal and religious matters in the everyday life of Rome. And so Jesus is in the temple courts, kind of where they do this work of teaching the law. So he's in their space. 
and he's teaching, which is what they do. And they point out something that is written in the law. It is in the law. It's in Leviticus. Which is why they say it's Moses. And it says, we should stone her. What do you say? This is what it says in our text. What do you say? And they're trying to trap him. It's not Roman law. If you commit adultery in Rome, that you're not getting killed for it. So they're trying to trap him because if this happens, something bad could happen to Jesus under Roman rule. But if Jesus says it doesn't matter what is written in, the Levitica, in Leviticus, what does that say about him as a Hebrew? That he doesn't respect Yahweh? So the little tricksters think they've caught him in a little tricky trap. Little tricksters. That's how lawyers are, right? Little tricksy tricksters. What do you say? So he starts writing in the dirt. We have no idea what he's writing in the dirt. Then they get demanding. In one of the, the, um, the texts or the, in the um, translations of the Bible, it says they start to get demanding. The NIV is a little kinder. They continue to ask him questions. But he's like not really engaging them. But they're like, oh, you're not, oh, you're not even going to answer us? Oh, you think you're a teacher of the law up here in the temple court and you haven't got anything to say to us? You should give us an answer if you think you have the right to teach in these temple courts, Jesus. Little tricksy trickses. So he stands up and he looks at them. You who are without sin, you can throw the first stone. Then he bends down again. I wonder how long they wait. They all leave. It's easy to make a list of things not to do. There are 613 of them in Torah. And then these men interpret those 613 of them and they have lists of things, you know, the same way that we have ways of interpreting the law. They have ways of interpreting these 613 laws. Things that they can and can't do. Could they have identified a way that they broke those laws, the 613 of them in Torah, and how they'd been interpreted? My assumption is all of them would have said no. Haven't broken any of the laws. They take pride in keeping them, which is how they teach them. And there are other pictures in the Gospels where people come to Jesus and they're like, yeah, I've kept all the laws. So in my mind, I think the answer that they could have given was like, we didn't break any of the laws. But they, I think, are smart enough to know that the whole law can be summed up. Because there was another tricksy moment in Matthew 22 where a Pharisee, one of these religious leaders, came 
I'll read it. One of them, an expert in the law, tested, again, tested Jesus with a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a really important verse. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love others. The entire law can hang on these two commandments. Love God, love others. Any religious scholar would know that's how you interpret the big begobblement. If we're going to distill it down, this is where we distill it down to. Love God and love others. You know, keep it simple, stupid, because when it gets complicated, it gets complicated. So this is how we keep it simple. Love God and love others. Paul, also a Pharisee, taught the law. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. This is the summary. But he says... The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever others there might be, which he knows, there's 613 ad interpretation, can be summed up in one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm. Therefore, is it there, the slide? Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Take a look at Romans chapter 12. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So here's this crowd of lawyers, tricksy tricksers. Could they identify a way that they had broken the law of love? Yeah. My hope is that maybe one of them thought about their actions towards this woman. and recognized that they had broken the law themselves. But maybe they didn't. And if they didn't, maybe they remembered the hurtful word that they had spoken to someone they loved earlier that day. Maybe they remembered a disrespectful glance. Maybe they remembered an envious or jealous thought. Could we all identify a way that we've broken the law of love? She's not standing alone after all. We're all standing with her. There should have been a man standing next to her. And as each man leaves, they address her humiliation. There's an admission that they stand with her.
They think they've come to catch Jesus. Using this woman to catch him. But instead, everyone catches a glimpse of the heart and purpose of Jesus. The heart and purpose of God. Even the crowd. You know, they think they've come for a party. Chapter 7 tells us that they're all there for the Feast of Booze. It's this big celebratory situation. So there's probably like music, it's joyful, dancing, then all of a sudden this happens. It'd be like we're having our Easter celebration and all of a sudden this kind of kerfuffle happens in the middle of it. Like not really what you're expecting at your Easter dinner. Not really what was expected at the Oscars this, the Oscars this last weekend, right? crowd and all of a sudden you're like okay there's no neutral bystanders in a moment like that it's not neutral even those of us who weren't in that moment with the Oscars it's not neutral you take it in and then you're trying to make sense of it and that's this crowd. They think they're at a party. They think they're there to have a good time. And all of a sudden, they have to make sense of this thing that just happened. This woman that has completely been humiliated and shamed and then not by this other teacher, this crowd of teachers that like, think they're all the sass. And then all of a sudden, they're walking away and you're just an onlooker. Uh, whoa. What just happened? That's exactly right. Give us a little giggle, girl. What did you see? Probably asking each other. Like, well, what's going on? These teachers of the law talking about the law. And then the revelation of the actual law. The law that drives the actions of God. The law of love. I was um, having a lovely meal with Amanda Lingle this week. And um, we were chatting about this. I love to chat with people about my sermons before I preach them because input and, and other people's insight on the text is so interesting to me. And so we were talking about this and she brought up that she's been reading a book at the moment and it's about Jesus. Jesus's character as being gentle and lowly. And she said, reading the book, she there was something that, was, that really struck her. And she said the thing that struck her is that it takes a lot to provoke God to anger because God's instinct is to love. And the whole Bible is God trying to provoke us to love. That's the provoking that God is trying to do. The idea isn't, like God isn't, the sense is not that God is trying to get us not to sin. I'm not saying that that's not part of it. It is. But it's not the point. I think probably some of you have heard that God can't be in the presence of sin. Has anyone heard that? Like that's often what is said, that God can't be in the presence of sin. That is not true. If you've ever heard that, it's a lie. Immediately in the garden, when Adam and Eve sin, what happens? God moves towards them, ASAP. 
when Israel is exiled, the first thing that God does in Ezekiel is he gets in a chariot. It's a strange picture in Ezekiel, but God gets in a chariot so that he can get out there to be with his people. It's like God moves ASAP. I want to be with you. I want to be by you. Yes, mistakes are made. Harm is done. I am in it with you. Satan in Job is talking to God. We know Satan to be the originator, the the instigator of harm. And he is in Job in in the midst talking to God. And Jesus takes on sin. And it's why I loved so much that Amanda was telling me about this reading is because it takes so much to provoke God to anger. Because God's instinct is to love. But somehow I think we've kind of bought into maybe another narrative about who God is. And that the whole Bible is this book about God trying to provoke us to love. And choosing love is not about ignoring harm or acting naively. Choosing love is about breaking cycles of harm. Our anxiety and our shame and our avoidance and the ways that we shut down, these are insecure attachments. And they show up in how we relate to God and others. And they speak of the scarcity of love that we've experienced and the insecurity it has produced. Our shame and our anxiety and our avoidance and our shutdown are insecure attachments. And they speak to the scarcity of love that we have experienced and the insecurity that it's produced. The Pharisees and the religious leaders come in with a ton of moral superiority. And what is revealed, Missio, is that moral superiority is an insecure attachment. Self-righteousness is an insecure attachment. Because it is about fighting to be right. It is an anxiety to be able to be identified as good. To, have, to be able to identify the boundaries between right and wrong, to keep myself love and keep myself in the space of love. But having to perform or be perfect or well-behaved for closeness is not security. It's insecurity. which can actually be a little uncomfortable for those of us who are rule followers. It means there's no superiority. We are held by more than the good deeds that we do and the right behaviors that we have. And it's not that we don't strive to do our best, we do. We strive to do our best. 
but we are held by more than our good deeds and our right behaviors. Jesus reaches in and reminds these religious leaders of that. They already know it. They just needed a little reminder. You're held by more than these 613 laws, and you know it. You just need reminding that you're held by more than your good deeds. Jesus is kind, respectful and loving in how he reminds them of that. So if you need reminding of that today, you're more. You are more. You are held by more than your good deeds or your right behaviors. Jesus also reaches in to the moments of humiliation and shame. The actions that make us believe that we're worthless, that shut us down. The actions that have been done to us that are humiliating and that make us shut down. We are more than what has happened to us. We are held by more than what has happened to us. And Jesus reaches into this moment of guilt too with security and validates the security of guilt. We don't have to go through life condemning ourselves for being selfish or annoying or whatever it is that runs through our head that tells us that we're not worthy of belonging. We can actually be honest about our mistakes and take account and repair and reach for restoration. Why? Because we are held by more than the mistakes that we make. What are we held by? We're held by love. And it is that reality and that security that makes us brave. That's true for kids when they have a secure attachment, they become brave. This week in my podcast um, that I did with Joanne, this is what she said. She talked about her insecure attachment and how it showed up in anxiety and needing to prove good things. And she says this, if I know that God is always there for me, that he loves me, that he understands that I make mistakes, I'm human, I can relax. I don't need to be too hard on myself or thinking that he's walking far from me because I did something. I can see him like in the garden, coming to ask me, how are you? What is going on? And I can be vulnerable with him, not feeling that anxiety or that I have to lie to cover something that I did wrong because that's part of the problem. Based on my insecurity, I could start being a completely different person or showing that I am something I am not just to have this fake sense of being. So the motivation is really to show up as my true self to have an honest relationship with God and others and feeling loved by who I really am. She, think, she says, I think that's the best motivation for being brave. And it takes bravery to try and break these cycles of harm. And that's ultimately what sin is. Sin is just these cycles of harm. 
And we need bravery in order to be able to see the ways that, that we harm, that I harm. I need bravery to be able to admit that and say, yes, I did that. And I need courage and bravery to hold other people accountable for the ways that they harm and to do it through the register of love. And we also need bravery to be seen for who we are. And bravery doesn't come from shame and humiliation and threat of harm and abandonment. Our bravery comes from a sense of security. That security of love and belonging. And so, Missio, if you have had an experience from an authority or a relationship, an authority of any kind, or a relationship that left you feeling worthless, it is not true. It is not true. You are not worthless. You are loved. You are not worthless. You are loved. It is out of that security that you break cycles of harm. Sin. That is how you break the cycle of harm of sin is that you know your own belovedness. Sometimes Christian communities, there's a fear of not talking about sin enough. That somehow we'll lose our way or we won't know who we are in proximity to God. And you've all likely heard this, but the way that we detect counterfeit bills is not by studying the counterfeit, it's by studying the real deal. The detail in the real bill so that when you come across the counterfeit, you know it's, you, it's like, oh yeah, this ain't the real thing. You tell the counterfeit by knowing the actual um, real, the reality of the thing that is real. That's how you know the counterfeit. And so I would say that I think the more that we understand the love of God, the more that we're immersed in it, the more that we believe it, the more that we can say, no, I am not worthless. You are not worthless. We are not worthless. The more that we understand our own belovedness, the quicker we will be to identify cycles of harm. 
in ourselves when we react with impatience or with control or with envy or with jealousy or fear or in the systems around us of racism, social inequity and greed and consumption, the more we understand and know love, the quicker we will react to acts that oppose love. Because we will know them because it tastes and feels and has a texture that is different than love. And the more quickly we will move with love, the deeper we understand it, the easier the rhythm it will be to move to that texture of love. And love is not easy. It's hard work. The work of love is hard work. It takes a lot of intentionality. And we need help. We need the Spirit of God to, to, to allow love to be born in us. We need help. We need each other. Oh, friend, that was not an act of love. Come here and give me a hug. And how are you going to... What's the ability you have to make amends? We need help to disrupt cycles of harm that are sinful. To be in step with a loving God, that's how we fulfill the law, says Jesus and Paul. And what is it that we're in step with? Love. That's how we know how to live, is when we understand love. And it's how we develop the security of love and bravery and risking. And so as we close, I'm going to ask you to just think upon this question. Think about, maybe just close your eyes and think about this story and the characters of this story and maybe the word that stood out to you and maybe which character you most identify with. And the question that I leave you with is where are you being provoked to love? Is it yourself? Do you have a critical voice in your head that always tells you that you are not worthy of love and belonging? Do you need to replace that voice with kindness? Where are you being provoked to love? Is it God? Is there a kind of honest statement you need to make to God? Or is it somebody else that you're being provoked to love? Is there someone you need to apologize to? Is there someone you need to offer a kind word to? Where are you being provoked to love? And what is one tiny little step that you can take in that direction this week? Think of it. Formulate that tiny step in your brain or write it down. What is the tiny step you can take towards love?
now I invite you to this table. It is a physical invitation to peace and reconciliation. That's what this table is. A physical invitation to peace and reconciliation. The practices that are demonstrated by Christ are costly. The practices of love. Jesus disrupts cycles of harm with love. And this table is set so that you can be reminded of that love that is for you. And so that you can be reminded of that it is that love that extends out of you. And that's missio how we disrupt the cycles of harm. And so you're invited. You're inv- invited to this table that represents peace and re- re- reconciliation. A table that represents the love that God has for you and that you then extend out from you. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we find it hard to believe our own belovedness. It's a struggle. And because it's a struggle for us to believe that about ourselves, it's a struggle for us to tell that story to the world. It's easier for us to tell ourselves the way that we've failed, the ways that we've misstepped, the ways that all the lists we could make of the ways that prove to you and the world that we're worthy of punishment. And yet your voice rings loudly in this story that you do not condemn us. That we are not worthless in your sight. And that doesn't mean that we get away with everything or anything. Because that would just be to perpetuate cycles of harm. But we're invited to love, to love others, to be loved by you, to love ourselves. And so I ask that, Spirit, you would, you would um, generate that in us and through us and out of us. And so those tiny little steps that we've just come up with, Lord, embody them and make them real in our community this week. Produce in us the fruit of love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.